If you have your Bibles, I do invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians. And we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul has been working through the glorious nature of the new covenant. Or another way to think about it, he's been also working through the, the benefits of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I just want to summarize what those benefits of the gospel, of the new covenant are. The new covenant is glorious. He's to, so he's, help, he's wanting us to appreciate that what the new covenant is about and the privilege of being members of it. And so he says the new covenant is glorious because it produces genuine, spiritual, eternal life. That's something the old covenant arrangement made with Moses at Mount Sinai could never do. It's also something that the world's um, best philosophers and, and best you know, ideas for how to live life cannot ultimately provide. The new covenant is glorious because it grants perfect righteousness. The new covenant is glorious because it is a permanent arrangement uh, until Christ returns. The new covenant is glorious because it means there is always, ultimately, hope. Always hope. And it's, it's glorious because it means freedom. This is freedom from condemnation and freedom to be who God wants us to be. And as John included in his prayer, it is glorious because it actually offers the power of a transformed heart and a transformed life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul's main takeaway so far in this this discussion is, because of these truths, we are bold. We have confidence in the path of life, our trust in Christ, our faith in him, we have confidence within ourselves and also boldness in declaring these truths to others. We, we don't have to waver. We don't have to, you know, mumble, talk under our breath, kind of act like we're semi-ashamed. No, Paul says, if you get it, we, you will be bold. In chapter 4, Paul continues his discussion of the new covenant. And here, the, the, as I read this, it seems like the emphasis is now on, um, uh, it's continuing on the appreciation, but the privilege of being members. This is not something we should take for granted. It's actually an amazing gift um, that God has given to us. And so with that in mind, I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading and hearing of God's word. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 through 6. Paul writes, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, 
but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we delight in your word. We desire to meditate on it day and night. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd make us like the tree planted by the streams of water, which yields fruit in due season and whose leaf does not wither. Lord, grant that in all we do, we might prosper. And this we ask not only for our sake, but for the sake of the name of Christ, in whose name we, we, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's amazing. Um, so th- this whole section and probably the whole introduction has been, um, uh, it- it's, com- it's complex. It's, it's, uh, it's fairly dense and it's, and it's theological. And-, and that continues into this passage. Paul here begins his discussion by emphasizing that his new covenant mercy is based uh, on God's mercy. It's, it's by God's mercy. He begins this section, he links it to what he has just described, what I summarized in the introduction, when he says, therefore, (laughs) this is a connecting word, based on what I've already said, I'm going to bring some conclusions. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God. So we're going to pause there before we get to his, uh, his statement. But Paul's ministry... He, he recognizes was not because, you know, he was so intelligent that he saw it, that he was so gifted and resourceful, or it was by his own effort in some sense. No, what Paul is saying is that his, both his conversion and his calling as an apostle, his calling to serve Christ by declaring uh, the truths of Christ, declaring the gospel of Christ, well, it is all by God's mercy. In general, mercy is God's withholding of the judgment that sinners deserve. Temporarily, in the case of the unsaved, to give opportunity for repentance and faith. And permanently, in the case of the redeemed. What's true of Paul is also true of all of us. We take it for granted, but the fact that we stand in Christ, that we have been granted membership in the new uh, uh, covenant, this is all a sign. It's all because of what God has done. It's, it's all because of his mercy and not giving us what we truly deserve. The, the Apostle Paul, um, he, he says that uh, to serve Christ, um, to serve his church in various ways, uh, to be able to talk to others about the good news of Christ, uh, this is not a burden. Uh, this is a blessing. And in Paul's case, the mercy of God is, is actually, it testifies to the divine origin of his, his ministry. Because if you recall Paul's background, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was going after the Christians, so zealous was he to defend his uh, Judaism that he was traveling to other cities in order to persecute the saints, um, and in some cases, violently so. And so for Paul now, 
to be traveling through the world, proclaiming the message of Jesus, and to be doing it at such great cost to himself, you know, there's a sense here that his own life is an apologetic of the truth of his message, of the truth of Jesus Christ. The only thing that explains the, the radical transformation of his heart and of his life is the mercy of God. As he acknowledges, uh, uh, he goes on to say, though, that, that his ministry has not always been moonlight and roses. It, it, it doesn't mean that because now he's, he's been received by Christ and he's been um, acclaimed by the Lord, it doesn't mean that he's just moving from one success to another degree of success. And so he says, uh, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. He repeats this statement in verse 16. So we do not lose heart, he says, though our outward nature is wasting away, our inward nature is being renewed day by day. Now, why would you say we do not lose heart? Well, you say we, will, we do not lose heart when you're in trouble, <laughs> when you're facing challenges and difficulty and temptations to, to just throw up your hands and to give up. He's faced great um, persecution through his ministry, and now he's facing the challenge of a church um, that's uh, questioning his credibility as an apostle, questioning things that he has taught, questioning his own integrity, um, as we'll see as he moves into verse 2. It's a reminder to us that even though our, our inclusion in Christ, our membership in the new covenant is by God's mercy, it doesn't mean that it is apart from challenges and trials and difficulties. Paul continues by expressing another truth in verse 2. The new covenant member must be committed to the truth, specifically the truth of Jesus and of the word of God. In verse 2, Paul's likely speaking in the context of those who have leveled criticism and charges against his character. And so Paul just begins with this general statement when he says, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Almost as if that's partly of what he's being charged with, maybe, you know, operating for his own uh, benefit and and for his own um, uh, well-being. But he says, no, we have renounced anything that would be um, of a secret agenda. And indeed, we promote the idea that the message must be consistent with um, uh, our hearts and with our lives as much as possible in Christ. And he connects this um, statement then in a more specific direction. So he's renounced underhanded ways and specifically in the way he handles the word of God and the way he proclaims the truth of God. For he says, We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, okay? Refuses to practice cunning. That word cunning, is it could be translated, we we, we, uh, refuse to practice craftiness. It's the same terminology um, that's used of the serpent in the Garden of Eden when it describes the serpent as being more crafty than any of the other beasts uh, or animals that God had made. 
And here what Paul is saying is, that is not us. We're not trying to distort God's word for you know, uh, personal um, uh, uh, reasons. No, he's saying, we will not tamper with the word of God. That word tamper is a, it's a, a nice visual uh, term. It was used often, again, within the marketplace. Paul's previously talked about peddlers of the word of God. This is a similar idea where he talks about this word tampering with the word of God because tampering was used um, sometimes in the context of wine merchants. Well, how might wine merchants tamper with their product? (laughs) Well, in order to expand their product, they could water it down. And what Paul is saying here is, you know, I'm not watering down God's word. I'm not distorting it. And it's so tempting to do that. Indeed, Paul tells his uh, co-worker and and disciple Timothy in 2 Timothy, he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. Uh, They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. There is this temptation, both on the the part of the speaker and on the part of the hearer. (laughs) On the part of the hearer, what Paul's referring to is, there's this temptation to kind of just want to hear what I want to hear. <laughs> I want to hear which will confirm what I already believe and won't challenge me all, you know, all that much. And Paul says, that's a reality. Um, it's not just true in the New Testament period, but in every age. And one, um, uh, Paul also charges Timothy this. He says, uh, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. What does that mean to preach in season and out of season? You know, does that mean not only in the wintertime when everybody's indoors, but also the summertime? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, preach the word, have integrity in just declaring what God has already given to you. Don't make up new stuff, at least try not to. And he's saying, and do it when it is well-received as well as when it is not well-received. That's what it means to preach in season and out of season. When it is culturally consistent, but also when it runs into cultural um, uh, hurdles and barriers and will indeed, in certain respects, prove to be offensive. But you need to preach in season and out of season. And one perennial way in which ministers of the gospel are tempted to tamper with the word of God is by teaching with great accuracy and enthusiasm all the ways that the promises of God benefits us and makes life here better. Okay? Paul would not be accused of being a health, wealth, and prosperity preacher. And and that may be in part what's getting him in a little trouble with these Corinthians, is he is modeling and he's declaring this need of counting the cost in Christ. Yes, there are all these blessings that he's just outlined about being a, a believer, receiving the gospel, placing your trust in Jesus. But there's also often a cost that it causes suffering, that it puts us out of step in, in, in certain respects with the world, and in certain respects will prove to be offensive, that it will lead to, in some cases, 
um, uh, being reviled and being rejected um, because of your faith and your adherence to the truth that God has given to us in his word. Every culture and every cultural period brings its own issues to bear that make the gospel hard to believe, and in some cases, offensive. In Paul's day, uh, there are a couple things. For the Jewish person, the proclamation that Jesus died on a cross was confusing and somewhat offensive. Why? Because for the Jewish mind to die on the cross, a wooden cross was something like a tantamount to dying on a tree. And they had been clearly taught in their law that anyone who's hung on a tree is being cursed by God, not only in their death, but in the life to come. So how could, a, how could God's Messiah, God's promised king, die this shameful death on a tree? Well, indeed, he was cursed by God, but not because of his own sins, you see but for our sins. And so that picture of cursing actually fits very well. But in Paul's day, this was a stumbling block. But by the way, Paul preached it anyway. Okay, He preached Christ crucified. For the Greek mentality, part of the difficulty, well, there are lots of difficulties. Um, one was just the change in, you know, uh, behavior, um, specifically in, in, in sexual directions. And, and so that was, in, especially in Corinth, um, where uh, uh, this kind of temple prostitution was pretty big and a moneymaker, that this was, uh, this was a radical change. But for the mindset of the Greeks, um, the difficulty for them was this idea that God would inhabit flesh, the incarnation of Christ, his bodily resurrection from the dead. Just, it just, it rubbed the Greeks the wrong way because it was so thick in their culture that what is material is somewhat corrupt and what is spiritual is separated from the material, and that's what we're trying to get to. We're trying to escape the corruption of the material world in order to enjoy this kind of spiritual um, uh, experience. Okay? And so for them, this, this Christian idea that God would inhabit flesh, it just, it, it just, it was foolishness to them. But by the way, Paul continued to preach the bodily resurrection of Jesus along with all the disciples. It, the message has always been hard to believe. You know, traveling from the 19th and into the uh, 20th century, as science is, is just booming, and technology is booming in that early period. You've got Darwinism and, and, and the rise of, you know, the understanding of, of um, uh, Darwinian evolution and so forth. Suddenly, this whole concept of the supernatural, of the virgin birth, of miracles, it just rubbed the scientifically minded Europeans and Americans the wrong way. And so the, the church was so tempted and in many cases gave in to the idea of removing the supernatural from the scriptures and from the message in order to make it more palatable for that period of time. So now the question is, what is that cultural, what are those cultural issues in our day? <laughs> that make the gospel offensive, okay? 
Well, it's kind of similar to what it is in Corinth, um, except that it's, it's, it's changed. It's, it's morphed. It's evolved in our time. But I would say that probably at the heart of what is making um, biblical Christianity offensive is, the, is what it teaches about um, gender and human sexuality. The idea that God made us male and female, and he's reserved marriage between one man and one woman. This is offensive. This is going to, and the idea, and um, so that those are um, uh, gender and, and then the, the sexuality piece. Um, you know, what the Bible says about homosexuality, what the Bible says about um, these same-sex uh, relationships um, is offensive to our current world. The gospel and parts of the gospel, now that's not right at the heart of the gospel. That's an outgrowth of, of the word that God has given to us, but, but this is offensive. And, and there are parts of Christian faith, but here's what you need to understand. In every cultural period, there are aspects of the Christian message that are offensive. This is not new. This particular Peace is new, but the, the idea that there are these offensive pieces is not new. And what Paul is saying is the minister of the gospel, the person who's a member of the new covenant community, has to hold to the truth of God's word. And we're, we can't change it <laughs> to fit what we want or to fit what our culture wants. The new covenant member must be committed to the truth. Paul says that we should love the truth. And, and as quoting from Peter, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word so that by it we may grow in respect to salvation. Long, that should be our heart, to long for the, the spiritual milk of the word. Then Paul addresses the privilege we have as members of the new covenant by describing the plight of the non-believer. And he declares that the unbelievers are blinded by the God of this world, uh, verses three and four. In verse three, he just describes, you know, he's asking this question. He, he asked it specifically of his Jewish uh, people previously, but in part, what accounts for the rejection of his message by many who, who hear it, both Jew and Gentile. And so Paul adds another piece of his thinking on that question. He, he, he reaffirms what he said earlier, that their, their hearts, their minds have been veiled. Um, and previously he's described this as, as a result of their hardness of heart, the, the result of the effects of sin, in other words. And here he adds another piece. It's not just the effects of sin that is at work, however. So in verse 3 and 4, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. By the way, that's those who are apart from Jesus. They are perishing. They are currently standing apart from the righteousness of Christ. They are currently threatened by the wrath of God. And if they die in this state, they will spend eternity under the wrath of God in what Revelation describes as the eternal lake of fire. He describes these unbelievers, these non-believers, as perishing. And then in verse 4, he says, in their case, so here's the piece he's adding to what he's already said. 
He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Okay? He's blinded. Now, who's the God of this world? Well, that is a clear reference to the Christian understanding okay, that there is a devil, that there's this fallen angel who has great power working with the world to shape the messaging of the world so that what God says is up, the world through Satan's influence says is down, and vice versa. In Isaiah, we read, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Satan calls evil good and good evil. And he does this through the mouthpieces of the surrounding world. And of course, our own sinful desires our own lusts, our own desire to get out from underneath any kinds of moral um, uh, requirements, our own desire for pleasure and, and our own satisfaction, it's all working together with Satan. We, want, we are easily led astray because we want to believe it. And also because apart from, if we're cut off from God, how does anyone really know what's right and wrong? How do you know? At the end of the day, is separated from God, unless God reveals his moral nature, we are suspended, morally speaking, in midair. And it's so easy for Satan to turn us upside down. You know, the key question we need to ask those around us is, why do you believe what you believe? Really, why do you believe this? Oh, because so-and-so said, why do they believe what is their basis of this belief? Challenge it. And if you work it through at the end of the day, there is not a basis, not some anchor that it serves as a basis for their moral claims. It's just because it seems right. It seems good. Within this theme of, of gratefulness for the privilege of membership, what we need to appreciate is that apart from God's intervention, every person in this room would also be caught in this delusion. The way Satan works is he, he works through deception. That's his number one weapon, deception. And apart from God intervening, we too would be caught in this stream of the world and what Satan uh, would lead us to believe. So Paul concludes by showing us that the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ is at the heart of the new covenant. And he also shows us the answer to the challenge of Satan's deceptive power. At the heart of the new, of the new covenant is the glory of Christ. Verse 4. So we read, um, uh, Satan keeps them from seeing the light of the gospel. What, he goes on then to say, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And he doesn't stop there because he's kind of signaling the glory of Yahweh from the Old Testament. He's now applying to Jesus. And, he, and, and just to make this clear, he says um, at the end of verse four, the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Not just being conformed to the image of God, 
who is himself the image of God. In Hebrews, uh, the writer writes, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, you know, and just in case you miss what the writer of Hebrews is saying, he's saying there's a one-to-one correspondence between Jesus and God. You could put it this way. Jesus is God. (laughs) And just to make sure you don't miss the point, uh, the writer to the Hebrews continues and just concludes, and he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is a glory that we can hardly wrap our minds around. And so Paul goes on to tell us that this Jesus that is at the front and center of his preaching, um, or that he is at the front and center of his preaching in verse 5, for what we proclaim, uh, Paul writes, is not ourselves. We're not, it's not about the apostle Paul. It's not about any minister. It's not about Rich Lanning. It's about, and you can be thankful for that. It's about Jesus. We preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And at this point, we need to understand the fullness of deity in that term, Lord. And this became the simplest confession of the early church. And by the way, this was offensive to the Romans. Jesus is what? Lord. And all the the early Christians in some cases had to do at certain seasons of cultural life was to pinch a little incense and to declare Caesar is Lord because they had a divine view of the Caesar. And of course, the Christians could not make that confession. And it led to tremendous pain and suffering and in some cases, martyrdom. The gospel at certain points has always been hard to believe, and it has always been at certain points offensive. This is part of the calling that God has laid upon us. Verse 6 completes his thought begun in verse 3. If the minds of non-believers have been blinded by the God of this world, how can anyone be saved? How can we break free from this from the devil's delusion? Verse 6. For God who said, now you've got to get, you've got to see the, the analogy that the apostle's making here. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What's the analogy? The analogy is the apostle Paul is saying in the same way that God created the world. See, he's, he's, he's um, alluding back to Genesis 1, somewhere around like verse 3 or 4, somewhere in there. And, as, and in the creation, when God made the first creation, he said, let there be what? Light. Yes, let there be light. And, and what the, the analogy Paul's making is in the same way that God, the triune God, as Paul is um, uh, now not only spirit God, but Jesus is God, the Father is God. The triune God has created the world. He says now what God, that same God has done, has done the same thing when he's declared, let there be light in the hearts of those who were previously 
blinded by the deception of Satan, by the God of this world, and by the hardness of their own hearts because of their own sins. What was needed, what had to take place was not just a change of mind, but a new creation, a recreation, a second creation is what Paul is describing here. Every genuine conversion is a creation miracle. This is by the power, the sovereign power of God. We believe the gospel. We place our trust in him as the God who can redeem us and grant to us the blessings of the new covenant. We follow him always imperfectly. We follow him as Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we follow him by loving and serving one another. And this is by the mercy of God, by the sovereign creative power of God, shining his light into our hearts so that our eyes are opened, so that we see the glory of the covenant, so that we see the glory of Jesus, that we see the radiance of God in the face of Christ. Now, Paul's emphasizing the sovereign work of God in our salvation, in our conversion here. But this is not apart from using us as his instruments, right? He uses us to declare this message. He uses us to um, demonstrate the love of Christ, in some ways to demonstrate the, the life of Christ in how we live. Part of our calling is to embody Jesus. It's to manifest both um, uh, who Christ is and uh, through our words, through the message, as well as by our lives. We are called to be intentional in cultivating relationships with our neighbors, our coworkers, our unbelieving family members. And this is part of our privilege and calling as members of the new covenant. But brothers and sisters, what you need to understand is, you know, it's not just by, you know, luck that you have been made a member of Christ, that you have been um, become a member of his new covenant. It's because of God's mercy. And it is a privilege. Be thankful and walk in a manner worthy. Well, let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, we thank you for the gift of Christ. And we pray that you would, by your spirit, open our eyes, that we would see the glory of it, that we would appreciate the glory of Jesus, and that more and more our lives, our hearts, our our thinking and words and actions, they would be a picture of Jesus. And so, Lord, this is something way beyond us, and we pray that you would supernaturally be at work within us. And so we ask it uh, for the sake and in the name of Jesus. Amen.